Uh, well, this morning we are finishing out our short sermon series looking at some of God's characteristics, his attributes. Uh, we've been looking at ones that in particular, when he created us, he has built into us as well. Attributes that we don't often talk about. We've seen God is long-suffering, that God uh, has anger, gets angry, um, and that God forgets. That's the three things we've looked at so far. And this morning, we're going to talk about something that I think we don't necessarily like to talk about all a lot, or that, uh, that much, all a lot. That's not good. <laughs> that much. Uh, we like to distance ourselves from jealousy. We don't talk about it. We try to ignore it. Uh, and yet, when we look at Scripture, it confronts us face to face. So uh, let's give ear to the reading of God's Word this morning. A reading from Exodus chapter 20 and James chapter 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we come to your word this morning once again, come to hear from you, uh, to believe the truth of the gospel. I ask that you would send your spirit to us, that we might be able to hear your words to us this morning, that we might believe that you are a jealous God who is jealous for us, who longs for us to be with you and would do and does whatever it takes to have us. Pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. Pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. It's November 2014. President Barack Obama has traveled from D.C. back to Chicago to vote in the midterm elections. He goes to his local polling place, gets his ballot, and walks up to one of the voting stations. It looks like a tiny desk with like a cardboard box on it, you know, so that no one can see each other's votes. And he stands in one right next to Aya Cooper, she is a local resident also voting, and you can tell from the CNN video that she's a little nervous voting next to the president. She's trying uh, not to make eye contact with the cameras. There's got to be thousands of them there. She's trying just to focus on her voting, not to look at the president's ballot right there. That's when it happens. From across the room, another voter shouts, Mr. President, don't you touch my girlfriend. <laughs> it's... Aya's boyfriend, Mike Jones, who's there voting as well. And without looking up, the president just says, well, wasn't intending on it. <laughs> and Aya turns bright red. She's totally embarrassed, completely ashamed. She says, I'm so sorry. I just knew he would say something ridiculous. I didn't know what it was. She continues to apologize, and they continue to talk, the president and Aya, about what it's going to be like when she tells her friends about how embarrassed her boyfriend made her and how cool the president was with the whole situation. 
They finish voting, uh, and she turns to the president, extends her hand to shake his hand, and apologizes once again. And instead of shaking her hand, he goes for that awkward politician greeting, you know, like the side hug with like the side face kiss things. And he says, there, that'll give him something to talk about. (laughs) Now he's really jealous. Uh, The whole room erupts in laughter, right? Jealousy makes us do stupid stuff, doesn't it? Uh, Something that at the time seems funny. It seems smart, admirable, maybe even wise. But looking back, it's often embarrassing, maybe detrimental or harmful to ourselves or others, right? Very rarely do the actions we take out of jealousy end as we intend them to, much less end well. And I think it's for that reason that we see jealousy as primarily a bad thing. Something that we don't want to be a part of, wouldn't ever admit to and try to distance ourselves from. Shakespeare, in his play Othello, deemed it the green-eyed monster. And from an early age, we warn our children about jealousy, not to be jealous of other people. But here, in these two passages, and numerous times throughout Scripture, God tells us that he is a jealous God. It doesn't compute It doesn't make sense. What Does this mean that God sometimes acts irrationally and does things that have unintended consequences because he's jealous? Certainly not. So then what does this mean? Why would God tell us that he is jealous? And how does it change how we view God, how we view ourselves, how we view jealousy? See, God is jealous for his people. He's jealous for you. And that shows us the depth of his care, the depth of his love for us. And hopefully, it leads us to begin to long for the things that he longs for. Right? God telling us that he is jealous tells us that he was willing to risk loss, that he is now pursuing a return, and that he is giving, not demanding. Those are the three things that we get from these passages this morning, that God was willing to risk loss, that God is pursuing a return, and that God is giving, not demanding. We're going to start by seeing God risked loss. He was willing to risk loss. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, hold on, you skipped a really big part of this whole jealousy thing. How can God be jealous if he's really God? Jealousy comes out of longing for something you don't have, wanting something that you can't get right? How can God not have something? It's a very good question. The truth is that God doesn't have everything because God has lost something. Sin uh, keeps everyone and anyone from being with God. In Genesis, God made Adam and Eve. They were living in the garden, perfect relationship with each other and perfect relationship with God, interacting with God, walking with him in the cool of the day. They had a pretty good thing going. But then they disobeyed. Boom, sin enters the equation. They chose to disobey God. And they weren't able to be in God's presence anymore. They couldn't be with him. Because God is perfect and God is holy, no sin can be in his presence. So he politely escorted them out of the garden, out of his presence. Sin ruins everything. And everybody from that day on was born with a broken relationship with God because everyone's born with sin. 
built in, already there. Now, don't be fooled. God knew how this whole thing would go. He knew that we would choose not to listen to him, that we would choose to sin. All of us, not just Adam and Eve. If you were there, you would have sinned as well. God knew that, that his precious, dearly loved creatures would turn away, that they would be forced out, that he would be separated from the ones that he loves and and created to be with, right? He knew that he would lose us. He was willing to risk the loss, to make himself vulnerable, which is contrary to how we live. This past Monday, uh, my family adopted two fish. We went to PetSmart, we got the tank, we got the chemicals, the, the pebbles, all the stuff that goes in it, the, fee, the food, all that kind of stuff, and we brought them home, set everything up, put them in. Their names are Sparkle and Shine. They are the most fishy fish you've ever seen. We turned on the lights, fed them for the first time, closed the lid, and Michaela's first question was, can we get a puppy next? Now, that question has been circulating in our house for as long as Nicole and I have been married. For 12 years, she's asked and I've said no. Now, there's multiple reasons we don't have a puppy that I've said no to the puppy. It's partially because puppies are incredibly expensive, tiresome. They demand a lot of your time, as we've all heard from Bob as he has spoken over the past couple months. Um, But there's also another reason. I still remember the pain of eight-year-old me watching my parents drive away with Maggie, our puppy, to the vet and coming back with just a cardboard box. I remember the pain on my brother's face when I was 20 and our dog Sarah that we got right after my dad left us died and we had a funeral in the backyard for it. If you want to hear a great story, let me tell you that story sometime. It's ridiculous. But I still remember that pain. I still remember how hard it was and part of me is saying, now you don't have to go through that again. You don't have to experience that loss again. Don't do it again. That's part of the reason that I say no. God intentionally put himself in a position of loss in creating you. God was willing to create you knowing that you'd sin, knowing that you'd turn away, that you would break your relationship with him and that he would lose you that you would choose to follow other things, that you would walk down paths of destruction, and he did it anyway. But more than just the loss of something great, what we see in the passage from James is, is not just that sin breaks our good relationship with God, it actually makes us his enemy. It puts us at enmity with God. When we choose to sin, to to worship other gods, to love other things, to follow other paths, we become God's enemy. Most of us would never choose to entertain the possibility of such pain, such rejection, such loss. We've gotten really good at insulating ourselves from that kind of pain. We remember things that cause us pain in the past and we put up walls, we put up procedures, we put up limiters to prevent us from experiencing that kind of pain again. And even if we do care for something enough for it to get in deep and it to cause us pain, we don't admit it. We don't like to admit that we've cared about something so much that we could be jealous for it when we've lost it. That's what the the great philosopher slash rapper Jay-Z is saying in the quote that I put in the front of your bulletin, jealousy is a weak emotion. 
We don't want to be weak. We don't want to have depended upon anything else for our happiness or our fulfillment. What does that say about God? Willingly becoming vulnerable, risking loss to create you. Willingly taking on the pain of losing his people, being separated from them, watching them turn away and becoming his enemies. What does that say about who God is? Well, scripture tells us, God tells us that it says that he thought you were worth the risk. That God's desire to have his people with him, worshiping him face to face for all eternity was worth the pain of loss, the potential of wounding that he experienced. And hopefully you also hear scripture telling us that in God's economy, loving something or someone Uh, caring about them enough, engaging in someone else's life enough to risk the potential of pain, of loss, of rejection is more valuable than protecting yourself from it. Engaging with your neighbor, caring for your neighbor is more important than protecting yourself from the broken heart you might get when they move to another city, which happens a lot here. Caring for your employees or your coworkers or your boss is more valuable. Engaging in their lives is more valuable than protecting yourself from the gap and frustration that will come when they choose to move on to a different job. Right? Loving children and caring for children, whether they are your own biological children, someone else's children that you have welcomed into your home, or even the kids that we have back in Grace Kids, loving them, caring for them, preaching them the gospel, telling them how much they're loved, and, and risking the reality that they could turn their back on you. They could say some really mean stuff to your face. They could grow up and make decisions that are incredibly embarrassing, incredibly costly for you. Choosing to engage in that is far more glorious than protecting ourselves from that pain, loss, embarrassment, cost, whatever it is. God entered into that vulnerability in creating us. But he's not just okay with that loss, that separation. He's not just going to let it be. God was willing to risk the loss, but now God is pursuing a return. God's pursuing a return. Things have gone awry. God created all things. They were all good. He created everything to worship him and glorify him. And yes, sin coming in has broken our relationship with God, but it's done much more than that. It's done much more than just separate us from God. It's twisted everything that we have inside of us. All the ways that we were created, it's twisted that. It's twisted following God into following things that make us feel like God. It's twisted believing God's truth into believing my own truth, right? It's twisted the hope of new life into the hope of life from a bigger paycheck, Life from a spouse, life from a bigger house, the right job, just an afternoon of rest, life from a good retirement. Sin has twisted our order of affections, and God is pursuing the untwisting of it all. God is pursuing things to be put back in their right path. In this passage from Exodus, God uh, is giving his people Uh, a set of rules to live by as they're being formed into the nation Israel. Rules that we call commandments. 
And here in the second commandment, God is is telling them not to make any visible thing into a representation of God or a God. He is telling them not to bow down and worship anything that was created by hands because he is a jealous God. Now, the first reading of that, it might seem like God is saying, please don't worship anything else. I couldn't stand it. I need you to worship me. I'm so jealous over you. But that's not what God is saying. Right? God, in giving Israel this commandment, is saying, I have created you in a specific way, with a specific function, and that is to worship me with everything that you've got, heart, soul, mind, strength, everything. And if you worship something else just because you can see it and so it seems closer, if you choose to bow down to something that seems precious because it's made out of some glittery material, you're not functioning as I have intended you to function. You're not living as I created you to live. And so you're not going to have the fullest life possible. In fact, it's going to be to your detriment. Worshiping anything else other than me is going to lead to your eventual death. The running down of your life, the wearing thin, the exhaustion. I want you to to live as I created you to live. To function as I created you to function. When I was in college, Nicole and I were dating. She was living in Atlanta. I was still in Gainesville, Florida. One uh, visit, that when I had gone up to visit her, driving back, I was sideswiped by an 18-wheeler. It busted in the passenger window, cracked the windshield, and uh, bent the frame on that side of the car and flattened the tire. He drove off. I pulled over and thankfully had a spare tire, a donut, in the back of the car changed it, drove back to Gainesville, and throughout the course of the next week, got the windshield replaced, had the frame bent back into place, and the window on the passenger side fixed. But I didn't have time to fix the tire, and I was going back home to Orlando the next weekend, and so I figured it's not that big a deal. Maybe when I get home, I just drop it off at the tire shop, and I'll get it fixed. Uh, So I pull into the driveway at at my mom's house, and she gets out, and she says, "Have, have you been driving on this donut the whole time? Did you not know that you're only supposed to drive 50 miles on a donut? Obviously, I didn't because I had driven about 200 to 250 miles on the donut. And what that meant was when I took the car to the tire shop, not only did I have to buy a new tire, I had to buy a new spare tire too. I had to get an alignment on the car and I had to pay to have the wheels, uh, the tires rotated because using the donut in a way it was not intended had messed up more things than just the donut. It had caused it to become unreliable. It had worn the tread down on all the other tires and caused uh, the the whole alignment of the the chassis to be off. Using the, the, the donut in an unintended way has caused great detriment to that car, right? That's the heart behind God's jealousy is returning things to the way they were intended to be. Rightness. You living as you were created to live, depending upon God, interacting with him, worshiping him with everything that you've got. Now, let's be clear. Yes, God deserves to be worshiped and glorified by everything and everyone that he has created. So God is asking for and seeking what he deserves. But here's the amazing thing about God as creator. What God deserves flows out of what is best for us. He created us in such a way that if we are giving him what he deserves, we are also getting the best possible life out of it. Rightness. Right in the sense of him being worshipped 
and praised as he deserves, right in the sense of us living as fully as we were created to live. That's what God is pursuing. That's what God is is looking for in his jealousy, is a return to rightness. And in order to bring us back into that rightly structured, rightly ordered life, in order to bring us back to a place where we're worshiping him as we ought to, God employs a unique strategy. God chooses to give instead of demand. God is giving, not demanding. The author, uh, David Foster Wallace, in his work, Infinite Jest, wrote this, we are all dying to give our lives away to something, maybe God or Satan, politics or grammar, topology or philately, philately, the collection of stamps, studying of stamps, however you pronounce that, philately. Uh, the object seemed incidental into this will to give ourselves away utterly, right? We will follow anything and we'll give ourselves to that thing. And I don't want to build you up too much or inflate your ego too much, but everything wants you. Everything is jealous for you, right? The idols that God is warning Israel about, we're jealous for them. The idols that fill our world today are jealous for you. Achievement, success, recognition, fill in the blank. Other spiritualities and other religions, they're jealous for you. The cult of self, everything is jealous over you. And here's the thing, all of those things, the way that they express their jealousy, the way they desire to draw you in is by demanding things from you, right? Success is a good thing. But if you want to continue to pursue success, success, to live out of success, eventually you're going to have to continue to achieve more things. Success is good, but eventually that glory goes away. And unless you achieve something else, you're not going to feel it anymore, right? The same is true by living through the principle of karma. You're going to have to find new ways, more ways to be better, to be good, to do good things, right? All we have to do is look at the folks who are at the, the top of their game, right? People like Jobs or Zuckerberg or Bezos, they, they followed success from the infancy stage of, of a company all the way to their, its height. But what did it demand from them? Time, sleep, mental stability, family, a sense of privacy. What about people who are, who are relentlessly pursuing fame? What does it demand from them? It can require time for sure. Maybe it requires your friends, your morals, Uh, peace, financial security. What about people who pursue financial security to no end? Well, it requires your time. It requires your family relationships, peace, comfort. As the cost of living and the cost of care goes up, eventually you're going to have to cut more from the budget. You're going to have to work harder in order to earn more. It's never ending, right? These things demand more time, more money, more sacrifice, more denial, more work. Everything demands more and more and more But God's jealousy works its way out differently. God gives and he gives and he gives. That's what James is telling us in this passage. As God's enemies, he has every right to demand things from us, to demand our surrender, to demand our allegiance, to demand our obedience, to demand our behavior. And instead, what does James say? God gives more grace. God gives in his jealousy. And we see this worked out beautifully 
In the Old Testament book of Hosea, God's people, Israel, have abandoned him, have left him. And so in order to communicate to his people how he is jealous over them, he sends them the prophet Hosea. Hosea's wife, Gomer, leaves him, abandons him, chooses a life of prostitution instead. And as Hosea pursues her, Hosea's words to Gomer are intermingled with God's words to Israel. He is pursuing Israel, and we see that in the illustration of Hosea pursuing Gomer. And the way that Hosea speaks to Gomer when he finally uh, finds her, and the way that God speaks to Israel, uh, is shocking. We would expect Hosea to show up to Gomer and say, listen, you committed yourself to me. Leave this life now. Come home. Leave these people now. Be faithful to me. Demand, demand, demand. But that's not what happens. God speaks to Israel in Hosea chapter 2. As Hosea is speaking to Gomer, God says, I will allure her, Israel. I will speak tenderly to her. In order to have the things, the people that he wants, in order to achieve rightness, God doesn't demand, he gives. And he gives, and he gives. He gives mercy. He gives his patience. He gives his grace. And we see all of this ultimately when he gives his son. In order for our relationship to be repaired, in order for our affections and heart to be untwisted, God gave his only son. Jesus took on flesh, became man. He lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. He died the death that our sins deserve. And in rising from the dead, Jesus guarantees everything's going back to normal one day. I guarantee that the relationship will be repaired. Not even death, the penalty of sin, could hold Jesus in. And that shows us that God would do anything in order to have us back, in order to untwist everything that our sin has twisted up, messed up. One of the most popular shows on Netflix right now is a docu-series called Cheer about the 14-time national champion Navarro College cheerleading team. And it, it follows the individuals that are on the team, their stories, their life, life growing up, things like that. It follows the coach that has led this school to such an elite status to all these national champions. It, it shows their commitment, the time that they put in, the practice the pain, the suffering that they go through in order to operate at this incredibly high level. And in one of the episodes, one of the assistant coaches who is responsible uh, for the emotional, relational, and, and mental wellness of the people on the team is talking to everybody, the trainers, the athletes, the coaches, everybody. And he's explaining, telling the story, why he's so committed to this program. And it starts when he was on the team when he was a cheerleader. And after spending all this time preparing to go to the national championship, a week before, he, in his own words, made a bad decision and had to spend a night in jail for it. But, as he continues to say, that wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part was waking up the next morning and being kicked off the team, a week before national championship. He said it was such a blow to who he was, to his mental state, that he found himself wandering around, lost physically and emotionally in the downtown of the city where the college is in Texas. And he said, I was nothing, and I decided I was going to kill myself. 
He tried and he failed. And that's when the team found him. That's not what he uses to describe them, though. He says, that's when my family found me. You see, he didn't know this, but the team had chosen to give up their practice time a week before championships, to break their focus in order to go find him, even though he had already been kicked off the team. Even though he was no longer a part of the performing group, he was still a part of the family. And so they were willing to give up their time, their focus, their potential championship to make sure that he was okay, that he was alive. And when he realized that, he said, that changed everything for me. And I asked the coach for a second chance. She extended that second chance. And I've committed myself to making sure that everyone on this team knows that they're not just their output, but they're part of the family. They are cared for, they are longed for, and they are one of us. What we see in these two passages is not the care of highly competitive athletes. We're not talking about the the value we have in the eyes of a 14-time national champion coach. We're talking about the fact that the sovereign creator of the universe wants you He is jealous over you so much that he was willing to give anything and everything, including his only son, to not just have you know that you're part of the family, but to actually make you part of his family. God, in creating you, was willing to experience the pain of your loss, but he's not okay with you being separated. And so he has done whatever it takes, and that looks like giving and giving and giving to the point where he has given it all in order to bring you back. That's what God's jealousy means to us. Let's pray. God, this seems so foreign that you being jealous would be willing to behave in a gracious way because we often behave very ungraciously, very unceremoniously, very unlovingly when we are jealous. And so it's hard for us to believe that you actually want us, that you would long to have us back, to have us worship you face to face. It's hard for us to believe, but God, we see this here in your word. We trust you, and so we ask that you would allow us through the power of your spirit to believe that this is true. I pray that your jealousy for us would change the way uh, that we view ourselves, that we view our own jealousy. I pray that you would help us Uh, to receive the gifts that you give us, to receive your grace, to receive your mercy, to receive your son. And would you help us seek to create rightness in the world around us, that you would help us to seek to bring others into a loving relationship with you because we know you want your creatures back. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.